Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of It Ain't Week to Speak. My name is Sam Webb, and this show is dedicated to ending the stigma around mental health through community, connection, and the hard-hitting truth. I'll be speaking with guests from all over the world about life to inspire and to educate people to speak up so that we can save more lives. Thank you for joining me on this journey. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of It Ain't Week to Speak. Wherever you are today, I hope you've had a great week so far. I hope you're learning a lot. I hope you're going through growing pains, if any pains. Also, if you're having a hard time or you're struggling, please don't ever forget to ask for help. There is a lot of help and support out there. You'll see the resources section on our site and in the show notes for more numbers and names. I also want to say thank you to everyone who's taken the time to share the show with their networks, with their friends, family. Thanks for talking about it. Thanks for tweeting about it. Thanks for leaving reviews and comments. It goes a very long way for us, so thank you. My next guest holds a very special place in my life. His name is Daniel Price. Our worlds collided a few years ago. I think at the time, Livin was maybe two or three years old. Dan's life at that time was spiraling well out of control, and uh, in a time of desperation and need, he found living, and that's how we've connected. I want to get really deep with Dan today and unpack the darkness. I want to talk about his suicide attempt and the impact that that had on his family's life, his own life, his friends' lives. I also want to ask him why he hit his pain so well and how he perfected what I call the art of smiling depression. And if he had his time again, what he would have done differently and what he's learnt through his past experiences. And also what he would have done had he have had the tools and the education at that time to reach out and ask for help. But what really inspires me about Dan's journey is how he's been able to bring it all back from the brink of suicide. I want to find out from a man like Pricey what it actually took and what it actually takes to stay mentally fit on a day-to-day basis. His warning signs, when he knows he's going down the rabbit hole and everything else in between. It's an episode, guys, I don't want you to miss. I do want to make it very clear that safety is our first priority and this episode will contain sensitive content. So if any stage throughout the episode that you don't feel comfortable please feel free to unplug and hit the website livin.org and check out our resources or you can also refer to the show notes below. But now it's time to welcome none other, the great man and inspiration to many, including myself and a, a very, very close friend, Daniel Price. I'm actually very, very lucky to have stolen this guy away from uh, the gym. He's been pumping biceps all morning, but... Let's welcome none other than the man himself, Daniel Price. Danny Price, how are you, brother? I'm really well, mate. It's good to see your face. It's been a while, bro. 
Mate, it has. It has. We, we, miss, really you. we miss you down here in Sydney, brother. How's the, how's the Bondi beaches, mate, without me down there? <laughs> mate, safer, it, it? <laughs> it's a bit safer, wouldn't it? It's a bit safer, mate, without your head running around. No, nah, mate, it's, it's good. You know, living down in Bondi is, um, is amazing, although I don't get to experience quite as much as I'd like with working full-time. But, mate, it's great. I'm, I'm loving... Uh, Loving being down there and, and living in Sydney. It's a good vibe. And a family man nowadays as well, Pricey. I am. I am, yeah. Got um, lovely little Tallulah that is um, seven, she's 17, nearly 18 months old. Actually got some news for you, brother. This was taken yesterday. Mate, congratulations. You're having another baby. Another baby, 13 weeks, no mate. No kidding. Yeah. Mate, congratulations, yeah, brother. How good's that? Uh, it's amazing. Very exciting. The baby's due on Tallulah's second birthday. You're kidding. So we, Mate, that's awesome. So after the miscarriage last year, which, as you know, we can talk about really knocked us both around at about 10 weeks, you know, we'd really started to, to you know, feel like we were growing our family. We'd met the baby on the screen and heard the heartbeat and then it didn't work out. It was, it was a really, really tough thing to go through, especially for Sarah being in hospital and being unwell through that process. And so to, to get over the sort of into the safe zone just um, through that first trimester um, this week, it's a big weight off our shoulders. You know, Sarah was very emotional after the scan, obviously just so relieved. But made a, yeah, amazing times for us, exciting. You know, it's going to be amazing to see Tallulah be a, a, an older sister to whoever it is, boy or girl, we don't know. We keep it a surprise like last time, but made some amazing, amazing times. You know, but with that comes a lot of... Um, you know, a lot of challenges and stress around finances, moving house, is our house big enough? Can we afford to live in Bondi? Do we have to move? All these questions are coming up at the moment. So, um, you know, with great news like that comes a lot of um, a lot of thought and, and, you know, discussion around transition and the way life goes. But, yeah, very, very, very exciting. Well, mate, congratulations uh, again. I know that it's going to be an exciting few months uh planning and, and getting everything sorted and whatever transition that takes you on in your life i'm sure that you'll you and sarah and Tallulah will will be able to handle and accommodate that um no doubt that's for sure mate and and i want to dig deeper into that impact that you know a miscarriage had on obviously yourself on a relationship and as a family union but before we dive into that mate i do want to i want to find out exactly and i want to educate people how you became known to Livin and how Livin became known to you and how our relationship started more or less as a very good friends and, and the work that we've done together over the years. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do think it's a really important place to start. It, it makes sense to start there for this chat. Um, something that we haven't spoken about for years. It feels like, you know, we've been mates for forever. Um, I know we've said that before. And I think that's because we came to be mates through something that's so powerful and so close to both of our hearts for fairly different experiences. Yours being suicide, grief and loss of Dwayne and the amazing thing that you and Casey started in, in living. You know, I wouldn't be where I am today working in the mental health space and, and have, having shared my story around the globe if it wasn't for living. I'd had a, a pretty tough mental health journey, which we will dig into, so I won't talk about that now. But through that and in my early months of healing, I was searching for uh, community to help me heal, places that I would find inspiration and information uh, about living with um, mental illness. You know, I'd survived suicide attempts and living was, was something that I found online. Um, the, you know, the power of social media, it was, and the way that living was communicating its message 
just really resonated with me. It clicked from the start. You know, I did know of a few others charities that I was following and everyone's, everyone does it differently. I loved the merch element. I loved that it was, you know, a, a real community vibe and really grassroots. And I was learning a lot about, you know, the shit I was going through, you know, so I was just quietly following for a while. And, and then I started to work with my psychologist on writing a lot more about my journey and, you know, healing from my trauma and stuff. And, through that really cathartic process of self-counseling through writing, I thought I might share my story. I'd read some stories and they were very inspirational to me. Um, a lot of them were famous people. Though. And I sort of said, you know, not that I was the first one to ever share his story. I'm not saying that, but it didn't seem to be like there was many just normal blokes. And I felt like a pretty normal bloke to share a story of just, you know, living a life, you know, in a big city and things turning pretty pear-shaped and, and, you know, unraveling into mental illness, you know, not something that I was born with or living with all my life. And that's when I reached out directly to you and Casey. You probably remember, you know, I shot you guys an email and, and said, you know, I, I want to do more essentially. And you guys were straight on it. I'm sure it's a lot harder for you now with the growth you've had in the last few years to get back to everyone. But back then, um, you know, you responded um, with a lot of time and, and effort, I think probably because you had more then than you do now. I know how busy you guys are now and how challenging it must be to try and get back to everyone. I experienced it myself. But, you know, I'm very grateful for the time you gave me um, and the encouragement you guys gave me. And that was a bit around the time that uh, you were going to go on Survivor. I actually think I saw it maybe in your um, one of your emails about the Tour de l'Est the ride that um, you and uh, Society and Co, Living and Society and Co, were putting together to raise awareness for suicide prevention and also um, Indigenous youth education, and doing a, a bicycle ride from uh, Sydney to Burley Heads. And I thought, well, I've never ridden a road bike before. I love challenging myself. That sounds extreme, but I'll give it a shot. I needed something at that point, you know, I needed something to, I needed good community. I needed to meet some, some new dudes that were doing healthy things. You know, I had a great bunch of mates, but, um, you know, I distanced myself from the drinking and partying scene and that's how we came to, to connect. And it was a really organic journey that we, we went on. I shared my story for the first time off the back of sort of launching Tour de l'Est and my God, was that an unbelievable and unexpected journey that you'd remember? You know, I remember waking up after sharing that the evening before on social media around June of 16, June, July of 2016. Like my inboxes were full, my Instagram, my Facebook. I had thousands of messages that it had been shared across the globe overnight. It was one of those things that just went viral and I was extremely overwhelmed. <laughs> my anxiety went through the roof. You know, I called my psychologist, well, fuck, what am I going to do? I, you know, it freaked me out. I almost wanted to take it back. You know, I was like, I didn't want the whole world to know. I just wanted a few bit. And, you know, that's the stigma that we talk about. And, but, you know, it was an amazing journey. It just showed the power of storytelling. Um, it showed how much of a need there is for um, lived experience stories in the world, how much people connect with it, how much mental illness and mental health challenges are out there because, all the messages were, oh, Dan, you're writing my story. It feels like, you know, you know me, you know, I'm depressed. I've tried to take my life. It just went on and on and on. And I'm talking like the US. It got some great coverage. And as you said, it was sort of probably like a shock for you, mate. I mean, getting a story out to a handful of people, then knowing the next day that it was something that was around news outlets in, in various countries and continents it was mind boggling, I'm sure, no doubt, and probably brought its own panic and, and anxiety with it as well, mate. But Obviously, I know, I know your story pretty well because I've had the, 
the honour of speaking alongside you and we've been mates now for, for over four years and as you said, mate, it feels like a lifetime, which is, which is amazing. Um, and I know your story pretty well. Um, obviously listening to you share it in the States, in Australia, doing a lot of keynotes for living, doing your own keynotes and whatnot and sharing your story. But can we unpack that on, on it ain't week to speak? I, I want to share your story on this podcast. I want people to get a very inside understanding on a deeper level around how severe that story do you got? When I speak now, as you know, I call um, my story my journey to wellness because I, I do believe life is is a real journey for everyone, you know. And I'm still on that journey to wellness every day. I wake up in the morning and I check in with myself: How well am I today? How well did I sleep? Did Tallulah wake me up three times like last night? You know, um, did I get myself to the gym? Am I feeling good? You know, all those things. How are my stress levels and you know, that wellness piece is so important. Um, like you said, you know, it's still something that um, is front of mind for me every day, how I'm feeling um, mentally, physically, emotionally. Yeah, look, my story um, with, with mental illness and it's something that I only uh, unpacked probably two years ago. So when I started sharing my story, this part of my story wasn't told because I hadn't really joined the dots and, and, um, and pieced together how um, fundamental it was to my teenage years I guess and then my my early adulthood so at seven years old I was diagnosed with ADHD that journey for me was a very tough one as a very young kid with a lot of energy and just didn't like being in the classroom Um, I wasn't a bad student I didn't really struggle I didn't have learning difficulties put it that way but I just love sport you know get me outside I had way 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 too much energy and so you know the education system unfortunately you know it's still probably doesn't cater for kids as, as much as it should. You know, there's not enough diversity. But, you know, I was sent out of class a lot. I really struggled. I was the naughty kid. I was laughed at, you know, for, for being kicked out of class. You know, I got sport taken away from me. And it, it's so important because it, it set the grounding for how I felt about myself and the relationship I had with myself. I was picked on and bullied for needing to go to the, the nurse's station at school a couple of times a day to get my ADHD medication, dexamphetamine, every four hours. So I was its lifespan at the time. You know, it was just, it made, it was really tough. So I battled with that real identity crisis. You know, I was the hero on the sporting field. Everyone wanted to pick me first if we're playing touch footy, pricey on my team. You know, when they used to line everyone up, every time but in the classroom no one wanted to sit next to me because uh, you know i'd distract them i'd talk i'd fidget i'd click my pen you know i wasn't a bad kid but i thought i was i thought there was something wrong with me and it, you know getting whisked off to the doctors and caps put on your head and all these sound tests and everything it's quite a traumatic experience i realized i i'd harbored quite a bit of trauma from that because i felt like a science experiment you know and i came out and all i remember because i don't remember it specifically i do remember the tests because they were they were like i said traumatic but all i remember hearing was the doctor speaking to my mum going yeah dan's dan's got this problem um we need to give him these pills and he'll be normal that's what i heard that's what i felt it it really messed me up you know there wasn't enough education given to me about what i was um, experiencing and you know it wasn't delivered in a gentle way I was put on a quite a strict diet with no sugar, which is a blessing because I still eat super healthy, always have. I, I don't drink soft drink or eat junk food because I never really did when I was a kid. That was the grounding for me to struggle with mental illness. Not that I really experienced anxiety and or depression until much later in life, but ADHD 
is a mental illness by definition, by diagnosis. Your brain chemistry is different. Your brain function is different. For me, it comes out in concentration struggles. Unless I'm very, very engaged and passionate about something, I really can't hold much concentration. My mind wanders very easily and it's quite intrinsically linked with anxiety in a lot of cases. And and that's certainly the case for me. Something that I, again, I didn't realise until post-suicide attempt, you know, and, and getting the right help. But I carried um, my ADHD symptoms through into adulthood. Some people grow out of them. I have been medicated in adulthood for it, but now I don't take that medication. I just do other self-care, which we can get into. The bullying and the identity crisis was the biggest thing for me. I didn't feel good enough. I didn't feel like I fit in. I felt really different, you know. You know, a lot of people are going through that. But it's just it's just awful, you know, this feeling like, you know, you're in a you're in a room of people, but you know, they're judging you because you feel a bit different. And obviously the likelihood of them actually being there judging you at, at a birthday party or a sporting event or whatever it is, is slim to none. But your mind tells you that that's what's happening because that's what you feel about yourself. And it gets projected out into what you think other people think of you, obviously, that self-esteem piece. You know, that's where it all started for me. And then going from, you know, year six into high school, year seven, full-time all-boys boarding school, quite a strict school. Um, it was a family tradition. My dad had gone there, my uncles, my granddad. A big rugby school. I was a soccer player. And that was another challenge. You know, these little things that blokes go through, like I tried to play rugby, but I was small. I was picked on for being small. I had a high-pitched voice, you know, when are your balls going to drop pricey? Like, you know, all these sort of like little shit. But um, I didn't grow. I didn't have a growth spurt until I was 17. You know, like I was tiny. And so I went back to soccer. I was very good at it. I'd played high-level soccer. When I was 15, I was playing opens, put it that way. So you know what that's like, you know. And I was small, but I was very good. So again, I was going through this thing of like being picked on for being small. But then I was the hero, you know. I, I played first grade tennis and soccer from 15. So I played three years of both you know, I was captain and getting all the awards and things, but still getting this this flip side of being different and bullying. So I think by about year eight, um, I said to my mom, I just can't take the medication anymore. You know, I'm going through this whole thing again, people teasing me, oh, you know, go take your pills pricey. You know, it was awful. You know, it was really awful. And I didn't realise from a very young age, from primary school, I'd practised this really toxic behaviour of suppressing how I was feeling. So I never shared with my parents that I was being bullied at school, that even parents in the playground were telling me to get away from their kid because I'm naughty and I'm a bad influence. Like it was, you know, and I, I honestly, like I've asked my parents since, did I ever get in trouble for anything major? And they're like, no, but the worst thing you got in trouble for was saying fuck, you know, and that's just the way, unfortunately, the world was back then and, and still is in a lot of places, you know. The most detrimental part of that was I never learned the skill of, of opening up and sharing how I was feeling. Um, I did the opposite. I was a professional at bearing it and I coped really well. I don't ever really remember, you know, crying about being picked on or anything like that. I think I had some sort of resilience or didn't really care enough. Um, maybe it was because I had the flip side. I wasn't bullied all the time. I was bullied and I was also like the guy that was cool and fast and a good skateboarder and awesome at BMX bike riding. And I don't know, maybe that was, it was the polar opposites that allowed me to not really fall into, you know, an adolescent depression, which bullying can, can certainly do for, for kids. The biggest takeaway from that whole experience of my seven year old self to probably 15 years old was just constantly practicing that, not sharing how I was feeling and, and not letting teachers or, or my parents or anything know that I was having a bit of a hard time. And, uh, you know, and I, I never learnt how to do that until, you know, my life 
seriously fell apart when I was in my late 20s. And thanks for, for sharing that part of the story with us, Pricey. I think it's very important for people to know that, you know, they, they aren't alone. If people feel like they're in their thoughts and, you know, they're worried about speaking up and seeking help, it's, it, it is a very hard thing. And, and sometimes people won't understand and, and you might not even understand or how to articulate it. But as we'll, we'll unpack, you know, the power of speaking up is, is life-changing. And it's, it's certainly a skill or a, a technique or a learning that we, we don't actually learn when we're at school or when we're at college and when we're at workplaces. And that's why we like to place so much importance on, on speaking up and educating people around the very basic mental health tips and tricks to be able to live better and to be able to speak up and, and harness that, that strength rather than looking at it as a weakness. Your stories reinforcement and it's proof that it's life-changing and life-saving and yeah i'm really excited for you to share this next part with us as well yeah um so you know you can kind of fast forward a bit of my my story you know there's not a whole lot in it mental health wise that that's of of huge relevance and takeaways like so um i finished school i worked very hard the key thing to know probably in my um in my later years of high school and and um and going to university was that i became a perfectionist and it's it's something that you do find a lot of people that are struggling with mental health you know have this characteristic of just needing to be the best and needing to be perfect obviously perfection is something that is in my view unattainable but like, it's like no, an illusion no, really it, isn't it? It, it doesn't it's even an illusion exist. it doesn't even exist mm. exactly and you know I've, I've had to let that go i still something that i have to let go of and unpack all the time trying to be the perfect partner the perfect father the perfect guy in the office you know still happens sometimes and it's it's one of my early warning signs of a path to burnout for me so where do you draw the line with that then pricey if you and i both know we sit here and we know that perfectionism and being perfect it's it's just this throwaway word that doesn't have much weight behind it it's it's almost like an illusion it doesn't really exist it's an unattainable expectation which people strive for if you and i both know that it doesn't exist but we still try and achieve perfectionism how do you how do you draw the line there when you find yourself trying to be a perfectionist how do you snap out of it what's a tool that you use definitely um grounding and mindfulness meditation allows me to get a little bit of clarity and journaling as well unpacking how i'm tracking you know my my sort of thought trends if you want to call them that like where are my thoughts going where is my self talk am i pushing myself too hard am i saying things like fuck you should have been better there mate you can do better than that let's go stay 2 hours more at work you've got to get this done you've got to do this you should have done that the shoulds and the coulds and you know, it's that vocabulary that you start using in your own mind is something that I really check in on. And I, I really try not to let it get there. Like I want to operate um, at 100% effort, but not striving for 100% results all the time. You don't need to always deliver the best report you can possibly deliver. Like it's a nice to have, sure, you know, you're at work, but the reality is you, you can't give everything your 100% undivided attention and effort it's just not the way it works it, it can't like it's 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 a fantasy if you do that you will burn out because I've done it and you'll hear in my story how hard I pushed and how far I fell so how, how hard did you push mate very it started in those later years of high school I was training in my final years of sport and achieving captaincy and, and best and fairest. Good example, my UAI, um, so my final marks for people who aren't in Australia um, or, or don't, didn't live in Australia, like my final grades out of 100, my estimate after my trial 
final exams was 72 out of 100, which was okay. I felt I was better than that. I felt I was smarter than a 72. I hadn't been doing a lot of work in the classroom because of how important sport was to me. I hadn't been studying much. I'd just been getting by. My assignments were a bit lackluster, some of them 50% effort. Uh, but, you know, sport was the most important thing in my life. It was my passion. So it made sense. That's where the focus went. Everyday training, everyday playing, you know, in the gym, working. And once the sport finished and I had that, you know, we have that period of um, studying for your final exams. I was doing all night. I was cramming like no tomorrow, brainwashing myself with study. Um, it was very extreme. Um, I didn't get sick, but my next door neighbor, so I, I was a boarding school, so I lived there. Um, the bloke in the room next to me, just very small little rooms, little dungeons almost. Um, I went to wake him up for an exam and found him passed out on the floor in his own vomit because he'd done too many all-nighters and he'd put himself into a, such a stressed state that he, he had to go to hospital. I thought he was dead. It was very scary, right? But this is what we're doing to ourselves, you know, and, and I got through that, but I took my mark from an estimate of 72, which is pretty on par, you know, that's all your assignments taken into account and your trial exam, to 85, which is pretty pretty significant jump but that was just really hard work and, and unhealthy hard work not that it's uncommon you know for, for kids but it, you know it wasn't the be all and end all i did get into the course i wanted to do which was a business and property economics degree i, I had a bit of an interest in property so i went straight to full-time uni um so straight out of boarding school didn't have a gap year I was dating uh, a girl from sort of 17 years old and, and we sort of stayed together like young love and Halfway through uni, I got a scholarship, the only scholarship on offer to work at a big corporate property firm, um, one of the largest ones in the world. And again, you know, just really high achiever, you know, wanting to make dad proud, doing the best I could at everything. You know, it was, it was amazing getting work experience uh, in the corporate property world while I was still in my final sort of couple of semesters of, of uni. You know, I'm working in the corporate world while still being at uni and I'm 20 years old. The importance here, you know, it's not part of my story that I focus on too much when I tell it but um, I think the importance is just the fact that I was not getting any treatment for um, my mental health or you know a bit of childhood trauma I wasn't speaking about how I was feeling and I was countering that by just being the best I needed external gratification to know that I was good enough and how are you getting that gratification what through work through through relationships through performance and all that sort of stuff yeah, so just my brain was wired to win and be the best and get promoted and get the scholarship. Like that scholarship was mine, bro. Like I did not have a distinction average. I had a credit average. There were a lot of people in the class with distinction average, but I wrote the best cover letter. You know, I got my dad to prove it. I got my sister to prove it. I went into that interview and that, that interview was mine. You know, I did everything I needed to do told them how much I wanted the job. I'd researched the company, you know, I told them about the annual report. Like I just went above and beyond. Dad, I got the scholarship. Oh, son, I'm so proud of you, Dan. Well done, mate. You know, like all real, but very unhealthy, you know, very unhealthy way of living. That's how I felt like I fit in. The only times I felt that I fit in and that I was good enough and worthy as a human being and as a son and as a boyfriend was when I was being praised being told that I was doing a good job. How did that make you feel? How did that make you feel behind closed doors? You know, when you get all this external gratification and pats on the back and, you know, congratulations, making your family proud, your, your significant other proud and your brother proud and everyone else in your life proud. When you're by yourself, how, did that, how does that actually make you feel? Unfortunately, quite empty because I didn't really believe it. 
because of you know my, my childhood it, it stayed with me you know when you hear people uh talk about their inner child or, the, or their, that inner child work that you do in psychology around sort of healing your childhood programming and trauma and i was a very lonely kid lonely person you know i still felt a lot of the time like a seven-year-old kid when i was in my 20s so yeah look it was doing it was doing enough to get me by you know that external gratification and doing really well but it was fairly artificial what about when you weren't getting the external gratification and obviously there were times where you probably felt you were slipping down the rabbit hole so to speak what were you doing for yourself then like how was that getting counterbalanced was it turning to the booze was it on you know other things like drugs you know people have outlets in life like what were you doing for a while um there wasn't really any outlets or you know self-medication i call it but um any of those quite toxic um, behavioral patterns except for you know a fitness addiction which although healthy by comparison to drinking alcohol i still believe and i follow someone like russell brand who is a is a huge influence and, and mentor of mine there are certainly unhealthy healthy addictions and you know i know people understand the concept i was weighing my food i was counting my macros protein fat and carbohydrate intake you've seen photos of me my mates used to ask me all the time if i'm on steroids like when i went to my five-year reunion boys were like pricey what happened my neck was thicker than my ears <laughs> <laughs> Muscle you know, man. I was lifting huge <laughs> weights, mate. Yeah, I was, you know, I was addicted to the gym. You know why? Because I I was strong. I had personal trainers watching me lift. You know, I was 85 kilos. I looked 100, and I was completely addicted to, to bodybuilding because I was strong. Like I was a strong man. You know, I was a tiny kid. Now, now I was like, wow. Like, look at this bloke. Look at his muscles. Look how strong he is. Like, and I didn't take steroids ever. Like, I've never done that. You know, I, I'd never done any recreational drugs until my mid-20s, till about 26, which we'll get to. You know, I was a very healthy guy. I'd have one or two beers. Most of the time, I wouldn't drink at all because I was so addicted to, to the training element, you know. And Do you reckon you would have used the training as a way to silence, you know, the inner critic and those inner voices in your head? Or, or was it also a way of you getting in so control as to what you were doing? You were in so much control of your weight, what you put on your plate that made you feel like you had some control over your life? Do you think that was a big part of it as well? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. You know, it felt like I was, um, you know, I was really steering the ship. You know, I was working in the corporate world and I got respect from the older guys very young. They used to come and train with me. I'd teach them the ropes in the gym. So I had this interesting, like my mentors, I was mentoring in one part of their life. You know, I trained with one of my, old, my best old buddies um, who you've met, Brax, at the gym this morning you know he's still there um at the property firm still doing the, you know the, the same job and we sat next to each other for eight years he's quite a bit older he looks amazing but he's 50 you know he's still really fit but he wasn't super fit when i met him and i you know turned him into a beast and you know we we're doing 10 sessions a week between cardio weights and abs like we we're talking about this morning he said like our program was insane we we're weighing our food like chicken breast and broccoli every night you know it was it was ridiculous. I'd call restaurants. Like if, if I was having a family birthday dinner, I wouldn't tell anyone. I'd call them and ask them if they could cook me chicken breast and, and only use a certain oil. You're kidding. Like, mate, I was cooked. Wow. Yeah. But this was my way of, um, of like you said, getting control and, and feeling like I had it in the bag and, and I could keep myself on this path. 
some people have different outlets to be, you know, in control. I know for me, for example, I'm probably on the border of, you know, an OCD when it comes to cleaning all the time and feeling like things have to be always in order and otherwise my life feels like it's in a chaotic mass. And it's something that I, I'm always working on, you know, but some people have different different things where, you know, they're so invested in and, and sometimes we become naive thinking that it is good for us and it's good to be clean or it's good to you know go to the gym and be healthy but as you said earlier too much of something becomes sort of like this toxic addiction that starts taking over the way that we operate and it, and it actually physically changes the way you interact in your relationships with people because i'm sure pricey when you were you were you were so into weighing your food and going to the gym and having full control over that part of your life you probably didn't hang around certain people because they might have ate the wrong thing or they didn't go training and therefore it probably would have you yeah. know affected the relationships that you had with people yeah absolutely it became so consuming that it even probably affected my relationship um with my wife at the time you know by, by this stage i was married i got married at 23 to my high school sweetheart so you were um, there for six six years at that stage she got married yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I was really doing that thing where I was just ticking the boxes. I was promoted at work. I wanted to buy a house. I had a sports car, you know, I was wearing fancy suits. I'm massive. I've got big muscles. Yeah. Tick, 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 tick. Like I'm feeling good about myself. What more can I do to feel good about myself? What other external thing can I attain to make myself feel like I'm good and worthy and doing well at life? You know, and gosh, is that so toxic and so misguided? Both you and I know now, and a lot of people are finding this out the hard way every single day. Nothing external to yourself can bring you real happiness. That is my belief. So fast forwarding, we get to this point where, you know, I've got everything I think I need to be happy. I've ticked so many boxes. I've bought a house. I've got this fancy sports car. I've got designer watches and, and all sorts of things. And I've got the wife and, and um, the gym's not really cutting it anymore. Like uh, I'm not really getting the satisfaction anymore doing big deals at work. You know, I'm a, the youngest associate director ever at this firm and I'm making big money for a young guy and I'm not that happy, you know? What's going on? Why do I feel different? Sure, my relationship was, you know, sort of growing apart, um, which, you know, is just something that happens naturally for a lot of people, you know, especially when you get together with someone when you're 17. And I was still a kid, Webby, you know, at 25 years old, I hadn't had a lot of life experience. I hadn't gone overseas. You know, I'd been overseas for three weeks at a resort for my honeymoon, you know, like that's it. I hadn't traveled, I hadn't experienced culture. Um, I'd lived in a, a bubble in Sydney. I'd grown up in the corporate world, which is quite a toxic world to grow up in when you think that the way that those people live is normal. What you see is them working 12 to 15 hour days and going out on the on the booze, you know, whining and dining clients, um, drip clubs, cocaine, like just toxic stuff, right? And that's this top end of town corporate world. And I'm not saying that happens in every business around the country or around the world, surely not. But big cities in the Western world have a, a binge drinking culture. We know that, especially in Australia. Um, and recreational drugs aren't even really frowned upon in a lot of circles. They're, uh, they're praised. I remember one time where we were out um, partying and people were doing cocaine and people who were doing cocaine were asking other people who were smoking, why are you smoking? Because the smoking rules had come and you had to go outside. So it was more frowned upon in this social circle to smoke a cigarette than it was to do cocaine. It's just bizarre, right? Like this is, this is this mindset, so skewed. But I got swept up in this escapism in my mid to late 20s. 
So I'd never had that partying life. My marriage was sort of breaking. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Breaking down, and I was feeling quite disconnected, and 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 wasn't speaking about that. Um, we were going to marriage counselling. You know, it was looking like it probably wasn't fixable. I was feeling like a failure, thinking that I'm not a strong enough man, feeling less than because I couldn't fix it. And you know, this whole um, you know, I'm not good enough thing that was coming through. So I started running from those feelings, like no tomorrow. Um, the world of partying kind of lit me up, made me feel welcome. So I wanted to be the best at that. Buying everyone drinks, doing heaps of shots, doing lots of cocaine, thought I was really cool and escaping into this world that wasn't real. And it just exacerbated my feelings of loneliness, hungover days, anxiety. We talk about the self-medication, the booze and the recreational drugs were just a toxic byproduct of, of my brokenness and you know my self-esteem being so low. Um, and by that point, you know, it didn't get really, it didn't get really bad. Like I was probably going out once, once or twice a week, drinking and, and partying like a big night on the weekends, which is you know fairly common for a lot of people still. A lot of my mates still go out and have a big Friday night. But for me, it was, it was why I was doing it. It's all about the why. It's always about the why. It was about the why when I was lifting weights. If I'd ask myself that question, why do you need to be stronger? Why do you need to be bigger? Why do you need to be more ripped? If, if I really dug into that then and understood why I was doing these things, it was because I needed to feel good enough. I needed to be the strongest guy in the gym, the most ripped guy in the office, the most generous guy with drinking, you know, like buying everyone drinks and being popular. Like I was just trying to fit in. I was trying to be something. And, and that's okay though. You know, we all have to go through that. That's learning how to do life. You know, and I learned the hard way, like a lot of people, that, yeah, you're not going to be happy until you, you love who you are and you believe that you are a good person and that you're worthy of being here, which we all are, no matter how broken we are, no matter how traumatic our past, no, no matter what mistakes we've made. You know, I started making mistakes. I started feeling very guilty about 
going out and drinking and spending the money I was spending and being out all night and just not only to my own health, but I wasn't that person. Why am I doing these things that I, you know, I told myself I'd never do. And, you know, my marriage then fell apart. We parted ways. I left. We couldn't fix it. I didn't feel like it was fixable. And it became very tough. You know, it ended up in court. So at 28 years old, I'm getting divorced and in a, you know, a legal battle about, you know, our assets and finances is extremely tough. And that's when shit went really pear-shaped. I'm living with my parents for the first time since I was like 21 or something, I think. Um, so I was extremely independent, you know, from a very young age um, and successful, you know, buying a house in Sydney and, and having all that stuff. But, you know, it, there was no question. I, I had a lot of success young and I didn't really know what to do with it. And then it was kind of all gone. It felt like it was all gone. I lost everything overnight is what it felt like. And you hear people say that it wasn't actually true. But what I'd lost was myself completely in depression, panic disorder, anxiety, and self-medication through substances by that point. Um, I was completely lost and broken, mate. And I know you know how lonely those places can be from, from the work that you do. And I know you've had your own experiences too. It's an extremely lonely place to be, man. Like it still upsets me thinking about how broken I was, you know. I was crying putting my suit on in the morning if I could get myself out of bed at all struggling to shower my personal hygiene was shot you know I, I was quite like you really organized you know my shirts in my wardrobe were all ironed they were in color-coded order everything was organized and then I'd gone to move back to my parents it was a shambles I didn't have all my stuff I'd gone from driving a $120,000 sports car to buying my sister's barina from her because all my money was tied up I just felt like a failure I felt like a piece of shit um, and that's how I was living in my head. There was zero positive talk. There was lots of hateful self-talk, you, you know, all day you're a failure. The panic and anxiety was just crippling, you know, and the depression um, was like poison running through my veins, man. It was consuming me. It was, it was killing me slowly and I wasn't getting any help. This is like the, the, the fundamental thing here. The point of this story for the listeners is that I never told anyone how much I was struggling. I, you know, Danny, you okay? You know, you're going through a hard time. I'm fine. Yeah, I'm good, guys. I'm good. The mask, mate, far out. Like, my masks were so rock solid. Like, I was a professional at faking it. You know, we talk about that, that lie, I'm fine all the time, you know, when we present the Living, um, the Living Well program. And it's so true, you know. Fuck, I said it all the time. And it became autopilot. Like, it actually became subconscious. You know, it just became my program. All right, I'm at work, I'm in a social setting, fake it until I'm so anxious, I have to leave. Some of my mates started calling me the ghost because I'd disappear. And then thought it was a bit funny, you know, and, and it's sad reflecting on it now because little did they know I was going home or going back to my car and drinking myself to sleep, telling my parents I was at my friend's house for the night, telling my friends I was at my parents' house for the night, no one knew where I was. I was sleeping in my car like a, you know, like a homeless person because of how broken I was mentally and emotionally. It was awful, you know, and I'm still a associate director of a big firm um, sleeping in the car park in my car and turning up to work every day. Like it was a seriously bad place. There was no reaching out, asking for help. There was no telling someone how you were feeling. And, and how bad did it get, mate? Because I know we've, we've, we've spoken about this on a number of occasions, but where did, that, where did the rabbit hole end for you? 
Um, you know, I got to the point where, you know, when I described those mornings of really struggling to get out of bed, I was having a lot of sick days, you know, making up excuses that I'd eaten bad Chinese food and all sorts of, you know, bullshit excuses because I was so mentally unwell. But I didn't know that's what it was. I had not joined the dots that I was mentally unwell. Um, I, had, I was struggling with mental illness and I could get treated and fixed for it. I did not know that. I hadn't had education in mental health, which is why I'm so passionate about it now. Because I think I might have joined the dots and maybe could have got help and reached out a lot sooner than what we call crisis point. So, you know, my rock bottom came after probably I'd say three to six months of it being pretty bad and, and certainly a couple of months of just clinging to life by a thread. You know, it was the 4th of December, 2014. I'd spent the night um, behind my office building um, in my car drinking alone uh, as a way to try and turn off my feelings you know I'd kind of like drink until I was so exhausted I'd pass out and fall asleep it was awful you know it, it sort of stopped working I think I was just too broken I can't quite recall but uh, I just remember this morning sort of sobbing as the the clock ticked over to 5am and you know, it was almost time to do it all again. The sun was going to rise um, shortly. It was just on daybreak. It's still pretty dark. And, you know, I'd been feeling quite suicidal for some time. You know, I'd thought about it before. I'd had essentially a previous suicide attempt where I'd, um, you know, sort of taken a lot of medications and pills just trying to go to sleep. But I just didn't want to wake up. You know, when I'd wake up in the morning, I'd be devastated that I was alive. Like, fuck, I've got to do another day. Like, how am I going to do this? The energy it took just to get out of bed was, man, like, it was something else. You know, people are going through this all day, every day, you know, and I want to help these people. You know, I want, to, I want them to understand that there's help out there. I didn't know that at the time. And, you know, because of that, on that morning, I, uh, I walked myself up to the Sydney Harbour Bridge, you know, in my suit, and I just couldn't do another day. I climbed the outside of the fence. Um, at the start of the bridge in the rocks that you, you know well, but you know, a lot of listeners wouldn't know, but exactly where I'm talking about. But I then tightrope walked the outside of the Harbour Bridge to the middle and, and I was there to, to jump to take my life. I remember feeling so empty by that point. I, I, um, it was kind of done, you know. Um, I'd made the decision. Uh, you know, I sat down. I kind of was still remember. It's hard to talk about still all these years later. I took off my watch and um, I sat my watch on the railing for my little brother because he really loved this fancy um, watch that I'd bought myself and I, I did a big deal at work and, man, you know, like I had seconds left to live. And before I knew it, there were sirens like surrounding um, surrounding me. Someone had seen me on the bridge. It's about 5.15 by this point, so it was still dark. And, um, mate, like before I knew it, there was a police officer on the fence urging me not to jump. And the first thing I said to him, um, I, you know, I'm really good mates with this guy now, Aaron, Aaron Trevor, he saved my life. He said, mate, you know, don't jump. Like, you know, what's happening? You know, can you talk to me? And I told him that I was there to watch the sunrise and there was nothing to worry about. Like I was dangling from a railing on the outside of the security fence. And I was trying to convince this guy that everything was fine. That's how deep my programming of escapism was. And when I stood up and turned around on this railing, Aaron said he looked straight through me. He said he'd never seen someone so empty and broken, you know, because I was dead on the inside. Depression had stolen my soul, man. Like, fuck. It was so hectic. Like, you know, I, I normally don't go this deep into the story because, you know, 
I feel what it felt like then. And it is, you know, the thing that upsets me now about it is not just where I was, it's, it's how many people are there every day. You know, we're losing eight Australians to suicide every fucking day, man. In the US, where I did a lot of speaking with you, they're losing 22 ex-military veterans alone every day. Like, this stuff is real, you know? So these people are where I was, and I know how hopeless it is. I know how lonely it is, and I know how painful it is. And I'm one of the lucky ones, man. Like, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't have survived the, the walk along the railing. You know, I didn't care if I fell, let alone the rescue. Once I said to Aaron... He convinced me that there was help out there for me. You know, he listened to my story for about 20 minutes. I was just rambling about all the shit that was wrong with me and my life. And, and at this stage, was he talking to you through the fence and you were still on on the other side of the railings? So you were talking yeah, for 20 minutes. Yeah, I was. What, what do you think, mate, up up until this stage, I know there's, there's always, you know, there's so much to, to gather in this one story here. And, and I don't think it's just one story. I think there's there's so many different stories out of this story that's life-changing and, and will change people's lives. But what do you think up until that stage and now looking back and reflecting on it, what would you have done differently and what do you think saved your life? Look, very simply, I would have told my parents or someone. You know, I had a pretty good relationship with my parents. It wasn't, it wasn't a fear about telling my parents. It was just I didn't know how to tell anyone. What, so you couldn't articulate it? You couldn't actually talk about how you actually felt? Exactly. I, I didn't really understand it. I felt it was too far gone by that point. I felt like I was just fucked up and this was my path. I was broken. I'd failed at life. Like, oh, well, I gave it a real good go, but I'm done. I'm tired. I'm fucked. I'm exhausted, mate. I had zero energy and fight left in me i'd fought for so long and i think that's where people get to like it's this exhaustion that you don't experience unless you're so broken with depression that you feel like suicide is the only valid real option that makes sense you know like at the time so what would you say to anyone right now who's listening whether it's a, a mother or a father or a, a brother or a sister or just a mate what advice would you give them, personal advice would you give them based on your 34 years of existing till this conversation? What advice would you give someone if they were struggling and they felt like they felt helpless, they felt helpless, they felt worthless and they didn't want to live anymore? What, what's, what's your advice to them, mate, personal advice? <sighs> mate, I would say to them, you know, and I've been involved in these conversations, um, which I'm very grateful for. I would say, I promise you, hand on heart that things are going to get better you don't feel that you don't see that right now but i guarantee you they will in time things always get better and things always change the good times will come again these tough times will pass just like the simple analogy of the storm the storm always passes always every single time the blue sky that i'm looking at right now fuck it's beautiful always is there again it's a constant yeah, and absolutely it will. And and I think up until this stage, and you've done a lot of brain work and, and what I call, you've done a lot of work at the gym on your mental health and you still do to this day and you still have to to this day to, because it helps your life, helps your relationships. But a lot of people aren't there yet. They don't understand that they need to get that sort of help. They don't think they need to get help when it comes to their mindset. And 
I think it's all about, you know, it's a mixture of changing perspectives, having the confidence to speak up, exploring, doing research, educating yourself on what you might be feeling, being proactive rather than being reactive, putting your hand up if you if you need help because there's no medals for not asking for help. And Pricey, you're, you're living proof of that, aren't you, mate? I am, absolutely. Um, you know, we're, we're not asking for help and, and not knowing where the help was not joining the dots and, and not having mental health education, where that all got me, where suppressing my feelings and my brokenness got me was, you know, attempting to take my life on two occasions, being very determined not to live and being extremely lucky to have lived through that. I, I was ready to die that day. And, you know, if Aaron and the police hadn't turned up, I wouldn't be here having this conversation with you right now. The things that I was broken about, mate, like my marriage feeling like a failure, you know, my finances being tied up in court, you know, with lawyers and all that stuff, you know, the shame I felt about doing drugs and, and all this stuff, like, mate, it's all gone. It's, I've healed from it all, you know. Relationships break down. It happens. I've healed from that. You know, people make mistakes. I had to go through that to grow. Divorces happen every day. Like it, it, these things that I was really, some of them I don't even remember. You know, I, I was in a sort of, toxic relationship at the time like I was seeing a girl and it was hot and cold and like you know that was really breaking me at the time and you know it's these things don't don't really uh, matter and a lot of them weren't even real like feeling like a failure I, I wasn't a failure I know that I hadn't done a great job at some things but you know that perfectionism was the issue like my standards of where I wanted to operate were right up here and when you're depressed and anxious, mate, you're not going to get there. Good luck. Like you just can't because you're not operate. Your brain's not working properly. Your emotions are all over the place. You're tired. You're exhausted. You're struggling to just breathe and live. Like doing, getting out of bed and and just getting through the day when you're crippled with anxiety and or depression or another mental illness. It's huge. But you're not going to get. 90 or 100 percent in your exams at uni or at school or whatever it's impossible you can't because you're just not functioning you know properly and for everyone that is listening i mean and on that very note that you just mentioned there i mean with the right help and the right level of support and the right interventions and the right self-care strategies and with you know within your own life you can live an amazing life you can be very successful you can manage projects you can take exams Price is certainly not saying that if you've got a mental illness, you can't do anything. It's not about that at all. It's when you are physically, it's when your mental illness is taking over and you are in a crisis point. You can't think clearly and you can't operate to your capabilities. Is That's when it starts taking over the very things that you want to achieve in life. And that's what you're saying to go and get help, to speak to someone, to educate yourself, find what works for you. Because what works for you, Pricey, might not work for me and might not work for the person next to you. But I'm hearing what you're saying is with the right help and the right level of support, anyone can get back on track and they will see great days again and they will have bad days again, just like you have. You said you've had times since that time, probably where you've maybe been suicidal again. And you know, just recently you've had, another, you had a miscarriage, which I'm sure would have changed your entire life. And I'm sure that would have set you on your own new journey and of struggle and setback, which I'd love to talk to you about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like just before I go on that point um, about, you know, recent struggles for sure, you know, I just want to, yeah, clarify and, and speak about that that self-care stuff, you know. It, 
it is not a one size fits all. You know, for the listeners out there who might be struggling, I was talking about crisis point when I was talking about, you know, not being able to really do life for sure. You know, there are a lot of people that live depression and anxiety like I was turning up to work every day and still getting through life and doing all the things, being a mum, being a dad. That's just the way it is, you know, but I, I want these people that are listening that are struggling in some way. Um, you don't need to have been diagnosed with a mental illness to seek help. You know, if you're not feeling well, go and see your GP, um, your doctor. You know, there are some very simple surveys they can do about how you've been feeling lately to pick up on on your trends, your behaviours, your emotions, um, how you're feeling. And there's so much help out there. For me, it's everything from traditional psychology, which I still do fortnightly. I do that just because I've realised that if I stop for three or six months, stuff can build up. But if I'm releasing it every couple of weeks and I'm just talking through, you know, some work stress some financial stress, you know, we're having a miscarriage, like when all that stuff is just there in my diary, it just like my gym sessions are and my meditation every day and my journaling is, you know, I stay well. I eat well every day. I eat a really balanced diet for gut health. A lot of our brain chemistry is manufactured in our gut. You know, the science can't be argued on that point. You know, and uh, sleep is, you know, so fundamental and important. But, you know, it, it is different for everyone. I, I need community. Um, I need really healthy connections. So I'm part of a run club, you know, and I, I catch up with people around um, fitness and exercise, you know, in a social setting because it works for me. Um, I don't drink alcohol at all anymore. You know, so there's all these things that I've found that work for me and, and everyone's different. That self-care, even when it's running really well, things can still blindside you in life. Like you just, you know, mentioned, obviously, you know, like, so a couple of years ago, I lost a friend to suicide, um, which really broke me. Uh, as you know, Webby, you know, Ed passed away and he was, you know, he was a great guy, really blindsided me like Dwayne's death blindsided you and your community. It's a very similar experience, you know, real shock and just like that. Um, you know, affected me and, and, you know, our community. I had a really good self-care at the time. So, you know, I didn't fall into the rabbit hole that deep. Yeah, um, because I'd learned a lot of skills and, you know, just the self-awareness to go, okay, my mate's passed away and he's died by suicide, which for me working in the suicide prevention space had its own impact on me. Yeah, it was a trigger. I, you know, I'd seen him two days before and um, he hadn't shared with me that he was struggling and I felt like maybe I wasn't there for my friend and all those things. But I worked through it and, um, you know, the same with the miscarriage last year. You know, um, this one was probably the, the toughest challenge I've had and I'm happy to share it because it's something that people don't speak about enough. You know, my partner and I, I think we're about 10 weeks pregnant. We met the baby on, on the, you know, the sonography and we heard the heartbeat and she got unwell. She went to hospital. They, they said the baby was fine. You know, we saw it on the screen again and, and then um, she stayed overnight. They thought she had appendicitis or something. You know, it wasn't the hospital's fault. I think she was probably already miscarrying, but, um, you know, she had a miscarriage. She was devastated. I was at home off work looking after our, our then I think Tallulah must have been about one. She just started walking, you know, and it was just tough. You know, you're in survival mode. You're grieving. I'm trying to look after my partner who's now home on bed rest. I'm off work. Work's piling up. Finances are stressful. My daughter's, you know, a handful. <laughs> and mate, I didn't reach out for help. I just tried to be perfect. Like my default is always step up, do everything for everyone else. I'm an empath. I'm a giver. I'm a lover. And I left myself. The one person that didn't get looked after was me. And my family saw that after the fact. And, you know, they wished that they'd seen the warning signs in me. I didn't run for three months. So you weren't doing your self-care. Exactly. I was looking after my daughter pretty much full-time for, you know, a little while there, just probably a period of a few weeks. Um, 
but I burnt out. I wasn't meditating every morning. I wasn't getting to my journaling. And, uh, you know, at this point, I've been off medication. So this is about um, late August last year, 2019. I'd been off medication for a few years. With my doctor's help, I titrated off my medications. Um, I had been on a mood stabilizer for, you know, a bipolar 2 diagnosis. Um, I'd been taking... uh, ADHD medication, a single tablet a day, which was working really well for my concentration. I was taking antidepressant. So I'd over time titrated off all those medications at various times and was living a really healthy, balanced life, medication free, but with a lot of self-care. You know, when we traveled to the US and spoke, you saw my self-care. I know you've got the same, but I was always in the gym. I was recently off ankle surgery and I was still cycling and doing push-ups and getting my heart rate up. Very important stuff, man, isn't it? Huge stuff. Um, And everyone needs to do it, you know, because we've all got mental health, just like we have physical health and they're intrinsically linked. And it's the way we stay well and have like a really good baseline for when shit happens. Like when you get blindsided by grief, um, when you lose your job, you know, your marriage breakdown, relationship breakdown, like they're the key ones, I think, financial stress, relationship stress, grief. For me, you need that baseline. And I, uh, I lost the baseline during this period of grief um, off the back of the miscarriage. And it would have been a shit time in your life, mate. It would have been so hard, you know? Yeah, thanks, buddy. And, you know, but the point to this, the, the important part of this is, um, for the listeners, is healing and wellness is not a linear journey or like, you know, a straight line of healing by any means. It's up and down and backwards and two steps forward, five back, you fall in the heap. So I got to a point where I unfortunately became very burnt out again. I was losing control of, of my health and my life. My anxiety was through the roof. Um, I was feeling depressed. Um, I was very fearful of um, some suicidal thoughts um, creeping back in of not feeling good enough, feeling like a failure in some way. You know, it was all just mental. Um, none of this stuff was true. Still had my job, still working hard. But the facts were, you know, that I was doing really well but unfortunately you know my mind through lack of sleep and, and lack of self-care and grief you know got lost in that world again and and you know I am susceptible to it and um, I had to reach out for help you know but I did so much earlier than I needed to you know I was drowning man like I was out the back of the surf um, getting pummeled by big big waves man and and I put my hand up for the lifeguard and said like someone needs to rescue me here so what ended up happening was my psychologist, I told her what had been happening and she said, Dan, I'm worried about you. Um, I don't even want you to leave my office without someone coming and picking you up because you are very volatile right now. I think you're more volatile than you think you are because I wanted to be better than I was. I was telling her because by that point, by this point, obviously, I was very good at articulating how I was feeling. So I was telling her, these are my thoughts. This is how I'm feeling. But I don't think it's that bad because I needed it to not be that bad. I didn't want to have to. You're trying to sell yourself. Yeah, you're trying to sell yourself. Yeah, you know, like, you know, because I've got this positive mindset now and I'm like, I'm going to be all right. And I was going to be all right. You needed intervention. Yeah, you needed someone to step in and, and help you. Correct. Um, and that's, you know, why you have those people in your life, those confidants that can say, Dan, I'm hearing you. And what I'm hearing is you actually need some help. You need some time off work. You need to take a few things off your plate. You are on the path to burnout and we know where burnout leads for you. Um, and I do, you know, um, and it had gone a bit too far. You know, I, I believe on a, on a brain chemistry um, level, uh, my brain chemistry had gone a bit AWOL again, you know, because I was feeling these depressed moods and, and you know, some suicidal thoughts and, and, and they're not, they're not pleasant, scary. Um, I've got a daughter, you know, and I was just, I was quite scared. And I ended up putting myself back into hospital, work my job that I'm still in, um, 
were very supportive. I had three weeks uh, of, of sick leave, which they paid me for, you know, and not everyone has this luxury. Not everyone has a job, you know, so I'm very grateful for these things. And I understand for some people, these crisis points are much, much harder because of finances. And I empathize with those people who have it a lot tougher than I do and don't have the access to support, the access to medical care. I've got private health insurance. So I was able to get into a private clinic near my house in the Eastern beaches very quickly. And I took time out. It was very tough, mate. It was two days before my daughter's first birthday, but she needs a father. And, um, you know, I wasn't confident that I could um, sustain the level of living I was, I was um, sustaining, you know, the stress and all that sort of stuff. So I think I was there for 22 days. I stayed longer than, you know, they could have discharged me earlier. I wasn't at, at crisis point, but I needed the time out and, and I found a lot of healing there. I found a new psychologist that I started digging deeper on some childhood trauma and went back on medication, which I'm still on now. And it really recharged me. Probably within six weeks of that, I started feeling really good again. You know, the rebound for me was was quite fast. And you had your own self-care strategies already in place that you knew what worked for you. I slipped back into them, started getting fit again, started eating well again. So important, Sleep it, was a big one. Yeah, and also just taking off the pressures, um, taking off the job, taking off being a father, taking off being a partner for a few weeks. like. That's a real luxury and that's why, you know, mental health facilities are there for people who just like need a break. And, and I felt like a failure. Sure, I felt shame. Oh, you're a failure, Dan. You're no good. You fuck you. Look, you need to go to hospital again. You know, like all those thoughts were there. But I, you know, through my, my meditation and, and self-care, I knew that they were just my lack of sense of self, my anxiety, my depressed brain trying to corrupt me a little bit. Well, I can tell you, Pricey, you've done a lot of work, mate, over the years, and you've done a lot of work on yourself. You hit some very important things on the head, which I want all of our, you know, our audience to take away from this for their own loved ones and for themselves. I think is self-care is definitely number one care. Find what works best for you. Reach out before it's too late and be proactive and start going to the gym. And the gym in my context is a different gym. The gym doesn't always necessarily mean going to pump out weights and jumping on a treadmill and running for an hour. The gym is things like, you said pricey, journaling, things that are good for your health, good for your mental health, your physical health. Go for a walk, go to a psychologist, have someone to talk to, have an outlet. Put all of these things very much at top of mind as a top priority in your life and the rest of your life is better off for it. Things are going really well. You know, my relationship with Sarah is um, stronger than ever. Our communication is is really, really on point, which, you know, brings with it a lot of trust and, you know, we're a real team. And, you know, I, I keep life pretty simple for the most part, you know, and, and life's all about spending time with my daughter and my family and, you know, just getting out and being active, sharing this message. And, um, you know, I just want to see more love and less hate in the world, man. You know, I want to, I want to see that suicide rate across the globe come down and, and I'm doing my part and life is worth living, man. You know, it's, it's an amazing thing. It's going to get hard at times for people, your listeners, and that's okay. We'll get through it. You know, like you say, Webby, I'll steal your line. If in doubt, reach out. Very powerful, man. But as you said, Pricey, it's so true. Um, and, you know, we, we hope anyone who is listening to this that, they're able to reach out and get the help and the support that they very much deserve because everyone's got the power to get better and get back on track and start living again. But Pricey, mate, before we wrap up, uh, where can people find you? Where, where can they follow you? Where, where can they reach out? Yeah, you can find me at um, danpricey85 
on Instagram is probably the easiest. Um, it's my my original Instagram. Put a bit of mental health content out there. I don't do a whole lot these days. There's no selfies, ladies, of him at the gym. Don't worry about no, that. No, no. <laughs> and he's a taken man. But mate, we'll uh, we'll include all of your your contacts in the show notes. We'll we'll include them in the episode notes. Uh, and how people can find you. I'll also send this over into the Facebook group. You're listening with It Ain't Week to Speak here today with Daniel Price. Thank you, Pricey. Thank you very much for your time, and thanks, everyone, for listening. I really, uh, really appreciate the time. Mate, thanks so much for, for sharing your story with all of us to be able to go deep and go to those places where, you know, as we've witnessed today, it's 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 very difficult, mate. So thank you. Thank you for doing that, and um, no doubt that our listeners will... Uh, will find a lot of value from that into their own lives, mate. So thank you. Thanks, bro. Take care. I'll talk to you soon, brother. Much love, mate. Love. Much love. Thank you again for listening in to another episode of It Ain't Week to Speak. Please like, share, and spread the love to as many people as you can. Let people know that you subscribe to the show. Don't forget to leave a review or a comment so that we can grow this community together because a conversation could save a life. If you want to continue this chat, please join me on the podcast Facebook group at livin.org. I can't wait to share the next episode with you, but in the meantime, stay well, keep living, and remember, it ain't weak to speak. Thank you, and have a top day. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 